We're in Luke chapter 15 together this morning. And it's been a few weeks since we were in the Gospel of Luke together because of Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday last week. Uh, Just a reminder of where we are in the context of Luke. Over the last couple of chapters, Jesus has been engaging with the crowds and also engaging with the Pharisees. Pharisees challenging him, confronting him about his teaching, but also about his healing on the Sabbath day. And in this particular chapter of Luke, Luke begins by reminding us that the Pharisees and the, ta- and the scribes and the teachers of the law were upset with Jesus because of the people that Jesus was hanging around with. Jesus would welcome sinners and tax collectors. He would sit down at meals with them. He would go to their homes. And this enraged the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Israel. They couldn't see how someone who was supposedly a great teacher, a rabbi, a master in Israel, how he could associate with people of such low regard as harlots, tax collectors, adulterers, adulteresses. How could Jesus associate with people like this and sit down and even eat with them? That's the context of all of these parables in Luke chapter 15. And so we've seen the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, which both of those parables teach the central idea that God rejoices when a sinner is found. God rejoices when a sinner is found. And so the shepherd finds his lost hundredth sheep and rejoices. The woman finds her 10th coin that was lost and rejoices. And both of those people and their rejoicing is a picture of God and heaven rejoicing when one sinner, Jesus says, repents and comes home and is found by God. The parable of the lost son, or sometimes we refer to it as the parable of the prodigal son, is the third parable in that same set of parables and in the same context of the Pharisees griping, grumbling, complaining, upset about Jesus hanging around sinners. And it teaches the same essential idea about the character of God But this parable expands on what the other two parables taught us because it gives us a glimpse into the heart of the Pharisee, which Jesus is directly addressing in this parable of the lost son. And so Luke tells us that Jesus continued telling a third story. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, and he set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry, refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the privilege that we have to read your word, to listen to the words of your son, the Lord Jesus today. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive your truth. Lord, there's much here that our minds can understand. We've heard this story many times throughout our lives as Christians. Father, there's still much here for us to learn, though. And there's still certainly much for us to apply and to put into practice in our lives. And so, Father, I pray that you would teach us, illumine our hearts, and may the Holy Spirit implant these words deep within our hearts that we might live them and put them into practice. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Sometimes when I look at my role as a father, I I think about how I already have kids who are in college and I have kids who are about to graduate from college, but I still have kids at home. And I think about, you know, I've come a ways as a father, but then I also look at it from another perspective and think, you know, I've still got a long ways to go. I still have kids that are not, none of my kids are married, no grandkids yet, no, no other uh, in-laws involved with my, my kids yet. I still got teenagers at home. I still got a ways to go as a father. And I'm trying to think about what this father in this story is going through when he has a son who basically says, I'm leaving and I want nothing to do with you anymore. I've never gone through that as a father. Maybe some of you have, I don't know. I've seen families that have dealt with situations like this where they have someone basically cut off fellowship and leave and and never want to come home again and never be seen again. Cut off all communication with the family. I can't help but think how heartbreaking that is as a father or a mother to have a child wander off like that and go their own way. And so I put myself in this father's mindset, in his, what he's feeling when his son says to him, give me what's mine because I'm leaving. And this is a very unusual request that this son asks of him. And, and as we go through this story, really what we're seeing in this story with the father in this story is we're seeing God the father and his heart revealed And as we walk through this story, the first thing that I want us to notice is that the son, this younger son, is ruined by his sin. This younger son is ruined by his sin. In this parable, this son walks out from his family and he says to his father, I want what's mine. Divide me the inheritance. Now, this would have been a very unusual request in that culture because, you know, even in our culture, this is not something that would normally happen. Normally, the inheritance comes when the father would die or at least when maybe the father got so old that he was no longer able to to manage his affairs anymore. And then he would divide the estate among his sons. And so this younger son is jumping the gun well in advance of what is proper, what is appropriate by asking for his share of the inheritance. Now, because he was the younger son, he would receive a smaller portion of the inheritance from the older son. It was typical in Israel for the older son to receive double of whatever the younger sons received. 
And so if you had five sons, you'd split it six ways. And the younger ones would get a portion, but then the oldest one would get two portions. And so the oldest would get double of what the other sons would get. And so, but this younger one, he doesn't care. He doesn't care about how much he's getting. He just wants it and he wants it now. He wants what's his, or at least what he thinks is his, really what by custom and culture he doesn't really have a right to yet, but he demands it. He says, give it to me. Why does he ask this request? Why does he demand his inheritance from his father at this point? I think clearly he wants to go out and do his own thing, doesn't he? He wants to leave. He wants to go out and do his own thing. He wants to be out on his own. He wants freedom from authority, responsibility. He wants freedom from someone telling him what to do. He wants to run his life his own way. And that is the description of every single human being apart from the grace of God. We all want to leave. We all want to run away from God. We all want to do our own thing, our own way. I think essentially at the heart of the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden is the desire for autonomy, for self-rule. I'm not going to listen to God's commands and what he says is right and wrong. I'm going to decide for myself what is right and wrong. So I'm going to take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and I'm going to decide what is right and wrong. It is essentially a desire for self-rule, for self-authority, for autonomy. So it describes every human being. That's why Isaiah 53, verse 6, says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And our only hope of salvation is that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But that's our condition. We all go astray. We all run off. We're all that hundredth sheep who goes and gets lost. We're all the prodigal son who wanders away from the father. This is the natural condition of every human being born in sin. And so this son wants to do his own thing and run his life his own way. He doesn't deserve his share of the estate, at least not yet. But in the story, the father grants it anyway. And then the son goes off, takes the money, and blows it on wild living. He lives a wild, abandoned, reckless, extravagant life. Basically, he becomes a hedonist. If it feels good, do it. If I want it, buy it. This is why we call him the prodigal son, because prodigal means that which is wastefully extravagant or lavish. He goes out and he lives a prodigal life, wasting, throwing things away. The thing about this way of living is it always feel, feels free for a season. It feels free for a season. Just going out and doing what you want and living life your way, spending money, having a good time, having parties. It is freeing for a season. Just like jumping out of an airplane is freeing until you realize you don't have a parachute. There's freedom, but you can't fly. There's freedom in this way of living, but it has a disastrous end, doesn't it? So he goes out and he spends his money on parties and fancy clothes and gifts. He goes out and in our terms, he buys himself a new car and an 80 inch 4K big screen television he invites his friends over to watch the football game to his new nice apartment that he's rented with his father's money. And we know how the story goes. Before long, it's gone, isn't it? It's gone. He lives this lavish life, but his money runs out. He's clearly not generating any income to support this lifestyle. So he takes this lump sum of money and before long, it's just gone. And so verse 14 says that after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. Easy come, easy go, right? But then tragedy. See the compounding of the difficulties of the, the misery 
that the son is in. Not only did he reach bottom from his own, from his own actions, but then there's also things that happen that he cannot foresee and that he cannot control like a famine. And now he is in need. He is in want and he has absolutely nothing. His friends were there with him when he had money, but they're gone now, right? They were fair weather friends. When his finances ran dry and he could no longer provide the excitement they wanted, they were gone and they were of no help to him in his time of need. He's hungry. He's starving. He can no longer afford his parties and his nice apartment. So now he's homeless. He has no one to bail him out of his misery. Now, remember the context of these stories, these parables. Who's the audience? It's the Pharisees, the scribes, the, the lawyers, the teachers of the law. Imagine what they're thinking at this point, listening to this story. Well, what's a Pharisee thinking at this point? Well, serves him right, right? Well, this, this guy's getting exactly what he deserves. There's probably in the, the Pharisees and the scribes, this little bit of self-righteous pride. And thinking, yeah, this is exactly what this guy deserves because he was so disloyal to his father and he's out there just blowing everything on wild living. This guy is getting what he deserves. So this wayward son is at the end of his rope. He's lost all his money and all his friends. So what happens when our plans fail? What happens when we get in a situation like this at rock bottom? What do we as humans try to do? We try to fix it ourselves, don't we? And that's exactly what he does. He tries to fix it himself. Well, I've got nothing, so I'm here in a foreign land. I'm in a Gentile country. I'm going to hire myself out and try to earn a living. And so he hires himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Now, for us as 21st century Americans, that sounds like a dirty job, feeding pigs. And certainly it is, but we don't, we're not even grasping the full intent of that picture if that's all we're thinking, because this is a Hebrew we're talking about, right? This is a Jew. According to Leviticus 11, pigs were unclean animals. They were not to have anything to do with pigs. They were not fit to have. They were not fit to eat. They were unclean animals. And yet here is a Jew, here is a Hebrew who now, because of his foolish decisions, he is finding himself in the most miserable condition that a Jew could find himself in, in a pig trough feeding pigs. It may be one step above a leper. That's how low he is. And the thing about what this story reveals is that when we as human beings separate ourselves from the father when we walk away from god as we do naturally in our human condition when we separate ourselves from god we will attach ourselves to something else right we as human beings need significance we as human beings are built for worship we are built to put our lives into something, to attach our lives to something, to give our lives significance. And so if that thing that we're attaching ourselves is not God the Father, our Creator, then it's going to be a small g God, isn't it? And it's going to be money or career or friends or whatever, entertainment, pleasure. But in the end... All of those small G gods, pursuing them, where does it lead us? It leads us to the, pig, to the pig trough. In the end, it leads us to the pig pen. It doesn't seem like it at the time. It seems freeing, just like it seemed freeing for this son on his partying and wild living. But in the end, reality set in. And when we separate, separate ourselves from God and worship small G gods, we will find ourselves also hitting rock bottom and eternally destroyed, condemned.
And so here he is at the bottom of the lowest rung of society, feeding pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. You and I were made to be filled with God. And if we run from him, if we take our little earthly inheritance of time and money and energy and use it to attach ourselves to other things than God, it won't matter whether we're worth $9 billion or $2. In the end, our future will be pig food for all of eternity. So he finds himself miserable and wanting. The son is ruined by his sin. We are ruined by our sin. When we run from God, we always end up in the pig pen. But this son, rather than staying in the swine fields of sin and rebellion, he repents and he returns home. So the son was ruined by his sin, but he repents and he returns home. Verse 17 says that when the son came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. This is a picture. This is a parable. It's a story. But this is a picture of biblical repentance. Notice some elements in the repentance. First, he recognizes his condition, doesn't he? He recognizes his hopeless condition. He recognizes that the path that he has chosen is worthless and futile and will only end in despair. When a person repents, comes to the Father, they must recognize their ruined condition. That if they continue on their path, their own way, living life their way, the way they see fit, that the end thereof is ruin and destruction. A second element in the son's repentance is a humble brokenness. A humble brokenness and a a deep sense of unworthiness before God. That's what this son says. I'm not even worthy to be called a son. He sees how broken he is. He sees he sinned. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. So he recognizes his brokenness, his unworthiness before his father. And a repentant sinner must recognize what his ruined condition means to God. He must not only recognize that his sin is a bad idea for himself and will end in ruin, but a part of repentance is also recognizing that our sin has offended God, our holy, righteous creator. Lostness is not something we can make excuses for. We are guilty. We are rebels, just like Isaiah 53 says. We have known our Father's will and we have rejected it. So repentance is a deep sense of how horribly offensive our lives have been to God. And that we have no rights before him at all. We can make no demands. We see ourselves as humble, broken, unworthy. And the third aspect of this son's repentance is that we cast ourselves on the mercy of God's free grace. We cast ourselves on God's free, merciful, bountiful provision of grace. Notice something with this son. At this point, I think a lot of people make a mistake in the way that they try to come home to God. This lost son is willing to come home as a servant rather than a son. And there's a, there's a, a little bit of a mistaken thought there, isn't there? He's thinking, maybe if I can just come home and serve, if I can come home and work, I'll be accepted. But here's the thing. We are never accepted by God the Father by serving or by working. We're accepted by his compassion and his grace and his love. And here the son recognizes 
how generous his father is. He says, even my father's slaves are better off than I am. I'm going to go back to him and perhaps he will have mercy on me. And so he casts himself on the mercy of his father. Repentance is believing that God is so great and so good that the smallest enjoyments of his house are better than 10,000 worlds without him. As the psalm says, better to be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to live in a palace as a king. And so this man's heart is changed. The Bible says he comes to his senses. He recognizes his hopeless condition, his ruin. He recognizes that there's mercy to be found with the father. That's repentance. And he comes home. He comes home and he casts himself on the mercy, the grace, and the generosity of his father. And notice what the father does. He responds with joy. That's the lesson of this parable. The father rejoices when his son comes home. Our father, God, God the father rejoices when a lost sinner repents and comes home. That's been the message of all three of these parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and now the lost son. There is joy. There is rejoicing in heaven when a lost sinner is found. What will you find when you turn home to God through Jesus Christ? Here's what you find in the story, verse 20. This man got up and he went to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. God is not so busy with other things that he is not concerned about his lost sheep. All his affairs are in order and well taken care of. He is free to be concerned about his sheep. In fact, he goes out looking for them, doesn't he? He goes out looking for his sheep. Before anyone else sees, God sees. He sees every inch of your soul. And he's filled with compassion. He's filled with compassion for him. The father sees his son and his heart wells over with compassion. And there's something in almighty God like this. Some of you fathers out there may know what it's like to have a child run away from home or cut himself off from the family. Then there's the phone call, the reunion, the homecoming, and the flood of emotion and longing and love when you see him walking toward you. That's the way it is with God when we come home. God feels this heart of compassion for sinners. He rejoices. Verse 20 says that he ran to his son. Now here is a distinguished elderly man with grown sons, a man who is of some wealth, who has land and servants. He has a certain level of decorum, right? A certain dignity. He throws all that away, doesn't he? When he sees his son off down the road and he runs toward his son. Forget the dignity, forget the decorum. And he comes with joy and runs to his son. Verse 20 says, he threw his arms around him and kissed him. You need to know that God is this way when a sinner comes home. He does not hold you at arm's length. Jesus did not have to include in this story these vivid, emotion-laden details, but he wants us to feel something here about the way God welcomes sinners home. He throws his arms out and he hugs him and he kisses him. When we are welcomed back into the family, we are not welcomed with conditions or at arm's length. We are welcomed back fully, openly with arms around us, embraced. And the son makes his confession to his father in verse 21. I've sinned against you, father, and against heaven. But notice the response of the father. The son was expecting, sure, you can come home and serve. You can come home and be a servant. You can come home and be a slave. And here's your wages. That's what the son was hoping for. But he got so much more, didn't he? He got so much more. Here's the response of the father. Not... You can be my servant, but you are my son. 
And so he says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Clean him up, change his appearance, take off the filthy robes from him and put on new robes on him because he is now home. He's cleansed. When I stand before the throne, faultless, why? Dressed in his righteousness alone. Zechariah chapter 3, Joshua the high priest standing there before God the judge, standing there in filthy clothes, and God the judge with Satan there accusing him, saying he is not worthy to serve as your high priest. God says, take off his filthy robes and put on him a new clean robe. He is clean. He is forgiven. He is righteous. He will serve me in my house. The only way that we can be welcomed by God is to take off our filthy robes that we have sewn together, our fig leaves that we have tried to sew together, our dirty clothes that have the stain of a pig pen on them, to take those off and have them replaced by the righteous robes of Christ. This man is welcomed home, new robes put on him, a finger, a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, lavishly provided for and gifts given to him. Again, not because he earned them, not because he deserves them, but because the father loved him and decided to give them. He says in verse 23, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. God is very glad when a sinner comes home. Do you notice the fact that this story of Jesus intersects with the complaint of the Pharisees? What was their complaint? This man receives sinners and eats with them. What is this father doing in the story? Kill the fattened calf. Let's have a feast and let's eat with my son, the sinner, because he's come home. Even in this story, the father is eating and sharing the banquet table with his lost rebellious sinner, his son. When Jesus receives tax collectors and sinners and eats with them, it is the gladness of the father gathering his lost children. Now, can you picture the Pharisees and their reaction? Earlier in the story, the Pharisees were no doubt, this guy is getting what he deserves. What do you think they're thinking now? This is ridiculous. I can't believe what I just heard. How despicable, how unjust, how unrighteous, how unPharisee-like that this father would receive his son like that. This son clearly does not deserve his father's favor. He already received what he was going to get. He doesn't deserve any more. That's what the Pharisees are thinking. But fortunately for the Pharisees, the story is not over. And this part of the story is where Jesus really drives home his point. Because this last part of the story is, is the most unlike the other two parables. The parable of the sheep, the parable of the lost coin. They taught us God's heart for sinners when a sinner is found. But this parable also is going to show us God's heart for the Pharisee. For the self-righteous one. And this point, this parable is different than the other two because here in this story, we have somebody who is unhappy about that which was lost being found. Somebody's unhappy about that which was lost being found. Verse 25 says, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, called one of his servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. 
But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He is lost and he's found. The story reveals that the older brother responded with self-righteous jealousy. The older brother responded with self-righteous jealousy. The father in this story represents the loving God who receives sinners. The younger wayward son in this story represents the lost sinner who is found. Who does this older brother represent? He represents the Pharisee, doesn't he? Back in chapter 15, verse 1 and 2. The Pharisee who is grumbling and complaining about Jesus welcoming and receiving sinners and eating with them. This older brother represents them. It represents the scribes and the Pharisees. The older brother represents the self-righteous, the religious, moral person. The Pharisees considered themselves to be the most righteous individuals in Jewish society, They expected everyone to match up with their holy standard. But Jesus' point here is clear. Their reaction to Jesus eating with and receiving sinners plainly shows that they do not have the heart of God the Father. Their reaction and the reaction of this older brother is intentionally contrasted with the reaction of the Father in this story. The father welcomes, the father rejoices. The Pharisees and the tax collectors, they're upset, they're angry. Their heart is not the same. They don't have the same response. Now, as we walk through this very briefly in this last part of the story, most of us need to listen very carefully to this part because we're all sitting in church today. And most of us today do not consider ourselves the wayward son because we're here, right? We're in the house. So there are elements of this story that we need to pay attention to because there are times when maybe we have the heart of the Pharisee of self-righteousness. This is a passage for longtime churchgoers. This is a passage for people who don't struggle as much with running from God as they struggle with condemning those who do. This is a passage for people who tend to think of other people who need this passage. If you've been sitting here this morning thinking, oh, so-and-so could really use to hear this passage, then maybe this passage is for you. These words go straight to the heart of what Christianity is, It's a right relationship to God as our father through faith. If we get that wrong, we get everything wrong. And it seems that this older brother got it wrong. Because look at verse 29. You can see how he's thinking in verse 29. After the father is pleading with him to come in and to eat, to sit down at the table. Here's his response. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. There are some key clues here to how this older brother is thinking, to how the Pharisees are thinking. How does he see himself and his father relating to each other? Not really as a son to a father, but as a slave to a master. Notice his words. All these years, I've been what? Slaving. Serving. He sees himself as a slave and his father as the master. It's a wrong way of thinking about the relationship, isn't it? It's not the relationship of father and son. Then he says, and I have never disobeyed your orders. Well, that's very much how a Pharisee would confess, wouldn't it? I'm really good at law keeping. How does he see his father? He sees his father as a giver of commands. 
He sees himself as a slave. He sees his father as a master who gives orders and who gives commands. And he sees himself as a dutiful servant who obeys. This is not the way the father wants his children to relate to him. It's a distortion of Christianity, isn't it? It's not the Christian life. Do you notice the exaggeration on the part of the older brother? I have never disobeyed your commands. Really? That's how the Pharisees viewed themselves. They viewed themselves as the faithful, as the obedient servants of God. But here's the thing. It dishonors God to treat him as a master in need of slave labor. What honors God is not slave labor, but childlike faith in his all-sufficiency. Because what did Jesus say? Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus did not come and hang out a help-wanted sign, did he? He came out and hung a help-available sign. Jesus is eating with sinners because he's a doctor with a cure, not because he's an employer with a labor shortage. He's a doctor with a cure. That's why he's eating with sinners. The Pharisees and the scribes couldn't see that because they themselves had a totally different mindset. Look at all these years that I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Here's where we need to test ourselves. And I fear that at this point, many might say, it seems to me that the older brother really has a legitimate complaint. And if we say that, then we're not getting it. We're missing it. You're still thinking in the old way of master and slave and works, not the Christian way of father and child and faith. The question is not whether the son really has kept all the commandments. The question is whether the father wants to be related in that way at all as master and slave. We are, as Christians, we can often become alienated from the ruined the broken, the needy sinner. Why? I think sometimes because we feel that we have worked hard to stay right with God. And there is no way that those who haven't worked like we have are going to come in here as a Johnny come lately and mooch off what is rightfully ours by such long-term hard, loyal labor. It's a wrong way of thinking about our relationship to God. Thinking about Our relationship to God like this alienates us from the weak and the sinners. It makes us angry and resentful of mercy. Instead of rejoicing with the Father, we pout about our superior merit and righteousness being overlooked. Do you remember the other parable that Jesus told where this guy went out and hired people at different times of the day? And he hired someone at the beginning of the day and says, I'll give you a day's wage. And so they come and they work and they receive a day's wage. But later on, he's more workers. He goes out at noon. He goes out at three o'clock and he hires more. And then they come to pay time at the end of the day. And do you remember what the people who had been there all day thought? We're going to get more, aren't we? We're going to get more. Because he started with the people that showed up later and he gave them a full day's wage. He gave them a full denarius. They thought, well, we're going to get more because we've worked all day. But when their time came, he handed them a denarius. And they thought, this isn't fair. Why are these Johnny-come-latelys getting a day's wage while we're getting a day's wage and we've been here all day? That's the mindset of the Pharisee, isn't it? And Jesus says in that parable, what, are you jealous of my mercy, of my compassion? Is it not within my right to give who I want to give to? The Pharisees here basically jealous that God is giving grace to sinners after they've worked so hard all their lives. They're angry about it. Self-righteousness makes us blamers. Notice in verse 30, when this son of yours came, not when my lost brother came, but when this son of yours 
came. He distances himself from his brother and he tries to even put the blame on the father, this son of yours. And so the older brother responded with self-righteous jealousy. But notice how the father responds. He invites the self-righteous to come home. He invites the self-righteous to come home. What does the father have to say about what the son has said here? What will Jesus teach us about how God relates to his people? Here's the positive side of the parable, how the father relates to the older brother. Now, keep in mind that this is Jesus reaching out to the Pharisees here. This is Jesus reaching out to the Pharisees and the scribes in that very room, looking out over the heads of the harlots and the drug users and the tax collectors and looking at the Pharisees and addressing them through this part of the story. And this is what Jesus says to those who were there that day. And this is what he says to us who have been going to church for decades and have grown hard and merciless and who feel contempt for the wicked more often than we do compassion. Jesus is looking over the head of the sinners and he's staring the hardened Pharisee right in the face and saying on behalf of God Almighty, all that is mine is yours, but it's an inheritance as a gift, not a wage as a slave. All that is mine is yours if you'll come in like the sinners come in. If you'll stop relating to me as a slave, if you'll be satisfied with all that I am for you as a father, if you'll receive grace and let it flow through you to your brother, but if you stay out here on the porch, if you insist on relating to me as a worthy slave, and that's where the story ends, doesn't it? The story ends there. The father is pleading with the self-righteous Pharisee. You need grace. You need to stop thinking about this relationship as slave to master. You need to think about this as grace, as a father who loves a child. So are you going to receive me that way and receive your brother that way through grace? The invitation is given, but the story ends And according to the story, the older brother never comes in off the porch. As far as we know, the self-righteous brother never came inside. The story is ominously silent on that point. We know from the rest of the gospel of Luke and the other gospels as well that the Pharisees really never did come inside, did they? In the context, the larger context of where we've been in Luke, Jesus has been addressing the Pharisees all along, going all the way back to chapter 13, reminding and and confronting the Pharisees with the thought that, that they thought they had a place in the kingdom because they're Abraham's son, because they're Jews, because they're Hebrews, they're children of the covenant. They thought they had a seat at the table because of their performance and all their made up rules and regulations. But what did Jesus tell them? The fig tree is about to be cut down. The fig tree is about to be cut down. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. There's going to be poor, crippled, blind sinners and Gentiles who will come from all over the world, north, south, east, and west, and will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. But where are you going to be? You're going to be on the outside looking in. You're going to be on the porch. But the sinner going to be sitting at the table. You're going to be on the outside looking in. He's the amazing thing. This, this story shows exactly what Jesus meant when he said the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Because where was the younger son? Well, he was on the outside, but where is he now? He's on the inside at the feast, the table. Where's the older son? He's on the outside. He's on the porch. He's not there. Jesus invites the Pharisees in. He invites them to come in off the porch because the father rejoices when a self-righteous sinner repents and comes in 
off the porch. So this story is teaching the same point, but about two different kinds of sinners. Jesus welcomes home and he rejoices when a sinner comes in off the porch. When a sinner comes home, whether of the ruined, miserable kind out of the pig fields or of the self-righteous, jealous kind off of the porch. God welcomes sinners. God rejoices when a repentant sinner comes to him. And so should we. That's the lesson. There's a, there's a practical lesson for us here. Jesus reveals the heart of God because he wants our heart to match the heart of God. Not like the Pharisees who were angry and jealous about the sinners, but like the heart of God who has a heart of grace and compassion and is open to welcoming sinners home. God rejoices when a repentant sinner comes home, whether of the ruined kind or the self-righteous kind. God's heart is open, isn't it? And he welcomes them home. May we have that heart of God as well. Let's bow in prayer together. Father, today we have focused over the last several minutes on this story that your son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, told the Pharisees and the scribes that day. Father, there is within every one of us the capability of self-deception. And there may be some here today, some of us who may be self-deceived, thinking that we are the repentant sinner who has come home. But maybe our hearts and our thinking and our lives reveal more often that we're actually the self-righteous, judgmental one. Lord, I pray that your grace would open our eyes to see the truth about ourselves, about our need to come home, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to your mercy. Whether we are self-righteous or whether we are ruined by our foolish choices, Lord, may we cast ourselves at your feet and find grace and mercy because we are all welcomed home the same way, by grace through faith in Christ. And so, Father, open our eyes today to see and believe in him. And we pray this in his name. Amen.